welcome. My name is Jamie Boskett, President and CEO of the Virginia Historical Society, and I'm thrilled to welcome you all today to the Virginia Museum of History and Culture for this wonderful lecture. So pleased to see so many of you and so many familiar faces. Uh, this is a very special Friday edition, of course, of our Banner Lecture here in the Robbins Family Forum, and we have a, a wonderful topic that we're uh, pleased to cover today. Of course, as many as you know, today's lecture is co-sponsored with the Virginia Antiquarian Book Fair and the Virginia Antiquarian Booksellers Association, and I'd like to recognize, yeah, they're both here, the two members of, uh, that have helped with the coordination here, Nick Cook and Adrian Kitts. Thank you both. Nick, we're... Oh, Nick's way in the back, and Adrian's here in the front. We're really thrilled and happy to co-host and to create this annual tradition with the fair. Now, on to today's program. We are joined by Tony Tipton Martin, who is an award-winning food and nutrition journalist and community activist. She is a James Beard Book Award winner. Tony is the author and co-author of several books, including A Taste of Heritage, New African American Cuisine, The Jemima Code, Two Centuries of African American Cookbooks, in 1991, she became the first African-American woman to hold the position of food editor at a major daily newspaper, the Cleveland Plain Dealer. Before that post, she was the nutrition writer for the Los Angeles Times and a contributing editor, editor to Heart and Soul magazine. Tony has been featured as a speaker at numerous institutions, including the Library of Congress, Duke University, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and Charlotte, and Austin History Center, and we're so thrilled to add this wonderful institution to that list. Please join me in welcoming Tony Tipton Martin. Good morning. I want to thank all of you for being here, and I especially want to thank um, the museum and the organizers of the fair for having me here. I've been casually and jokingly saying that the folks out there in the lobby are my peeps. <laughs> and so um, if you are motivated and inspired at all by any of what I will share with you today, I hope that you will visit them and support them because without them, um, this would work, would just simply not um, exist. And without institutions like this, this work would not exist. And so I can be more grateful um, to be here. But I'm also thankful to you. Um, I have to take a minute to you know, take that deep breath. Um, I always have to thank the audience for attending a lecture uh, and purchasing or supporting a project called the Jemima Code. Um, my mother was one of those early non-adopters who said to me that um, she wasn't sure how she felt about a project called the Jemima Code. So I always uh, acknowledge that you don't have to be here um, and that you've come um, with open minds and open hearts and I'm really thankful that you're here. So the lights are really bright. <laughs> I want to just uh, start kind of casually by letting you know that this is a plantation house um, taken in Brazoria. The photograph was taken in Brazoria County um, in Texas, which is on the coast. Um, I use this as my opening just to give everyone a frame of reference for who the people are that I'll be talking about um, and, a, and a give you a little sense of the, the workspace for them. Whenever we, you being here in Virginia, you have access to lots of plantation houses and tours and, and hear a lot about the furniture and the antiques and 
the serveware in the houses, but we have, until recently, not spent very much time talking about the people who were doing the work there. And so um, this slide has been with me from the very beginning. Um, it may at some point seem or uh, become obsolete, but for now it still matters to me because it focuses on um, the kitchen house, which is where the work would be taking place for the people that I'll be talking about. And why that matters is I want you to take just a second to notice the distance from the house, notice that all of the work took place in this little building here in the front, and that through the breezeway is the way that uh, the food would have made its way into the house, the women would have been cooking out here, and children would have been stationed along the way, making sure that that food arrived uh, uh, at its designation in the dining room. And so just that gives us a little perspective on some of the things that I'll be talking about in terms of what it meant to be an African-American working in the food uh, world um, uh, in the early days of this country. Um, for those of you that haven't seen it, this is the cover of my book. Um, this is a woman named Rebecca West. Uh, the photograph was taken of her in 1941, and it's from the cover of her book. Um, but what I'd like for you to notice as we're getting started here is your reaction. Every one of us has had or is having a reaction to this picture, and we chose it intentionally. Uh, several different thoughts come to mind for all of us. Some of us see this chubby-cheeked brown face with a wide grin, and we think it's just an image that's left over from this country's dark days of enslavement and segregation. We feel negatively about it and we think that it should be completely eliminated from modern culture because it was crafted to keep black women in their place in the kitchen. For others of us, it's an image that's an affirming, wonderful reminder of women who were in the home, everyone's home. They might have been doing the cooking and the cleaning and but they were also caring for children, and they were loving on the women and the men in those homes. They did that for little pay, and they did so while nurturing the character of the children in their homes as well as in the homes of their employees or in the case of slaves where they were uh, slaved, enslaved. And finally, not many of them here, but in, there is also a generation that's accustomed to seeing faces on packages all of the time. And so images like this one are, are those of Aunt Jemima and Uncle Ben are as non-threatening as Wolfgang Puck or Rachel Ray. They simply don't know what on earth I am talking about. <laughs> and I can testify to that because I have been introduced on university campuses as the author of the Hamima Code. <laughs> So in an era when everyone from new net food network stars to executive chefs and food scholars to nutritionists and authors and entrepreneurs are telling us what we should eat and how we should cook it, it would seem natural that the nation's most recognized cook would be among those inspiring the next generation toward healthy living habits and food careers that provide economic independence. But she isn't. After decades of accomplished cooking in elegant homes, Hospitals, catering companies, church basements, railroad cars, oyster houses, grog shops and bakeries, or as ranch hands, bartenders, and mixologists. After creating recipes that made other people healthy, wealthy, happy, and full, African-American cooks 
have been mostly ignored by the food world, at least until the Jemima Code. With this acclaimed book and its projects, uh, which I'll tell you a little bit about today, I'm hoping to change that. For the past 20 years, I have put on the aprons of these cooks, I have worn their headscarves, and I have reclaimed the bandana as a sign and a source of pride. I've poured through archives like those here and put aside the sexist and racist narrative that has dominated Southern history. And the Jemima Code is a book that reports basically what I discovered. Today I'd like to share with you a little bit of the backstory behind the putting together of this book um, and the ways that institutions such as this um, have helped me to make this work possible. I'm also gonna tell you what you can do about it. So what is the code? This is how Merriam-Webster defines it. Can you see that in the back? Oh, this is a great venue. There's many people that I've had to read that to. Um, to, go, to decode, the dictionary goes on to say, is to convert a coded message into an intelligible, intelligible form, to recognize and interpret a signal, or to discover the underlying meaning of. As Americans, we live with all sorts of standardizing codes, dress codes, moral codes, codes of conduct, codes of law, bar codes. Recipes are codes, so are prescriptions. But when we talk about a Jemima code, what I'm trying to t explain is that we can see an arrangement of words and images that have been synchronized to classify the character and the life's work of our nation's black cooks into an insignificant trademark symbol, contrived to communicate a very powerful double message based upon exaggerated principles and secret meaning. The images I encountered in history books didn't match what I knew to be the truth about these people. People like my grandmother, Nanny. This project began for me as a search for her on the pages of Southern food history. She cooked from the settlement cookbook, and that's an example of her chocolate cake, which she allured our family with at every holiday. But I wanted to know more about her besides her recipes. And I wanted to know in specific what kinds of things we could learn from these people besides their best recipes. And it turns out that we could learn a lot. It became a concept that I called the Jemima Code. And I spent years pouring through resources looking for what I started calling Jemima Clues. Here's one of them. The Jemima Code is a 200-year-old system of prejudices and double standards based on some truth. It originated in the handwritten journals and ledgers of slaveholding women in their letters to family and friends. They made inconsistent and emotional observations about female household servants like this woman, and they bloated those images into this larger-than-life character named Mammy. Those distorted representations about these people and their knowledge, skills, and abilities began to establish character, character types in Southern plantation literature. And then their names expanded and their characters grew to people like Jezebel and Sapphira. And those, those stereotypes transmitted messages that were open to interpretation. 
Despite affirming examples of real, professional, empowered, beautiful, and even slim black cooks, it is still too easy to link African-American women with a jarring portrait of the South's old black mammy. The association between the toothy grin and calico swath plump face belonging to the world's most recognized black cook, Aunt Jemima, and modern women is hurtful and offensive. The stereotype also obscures any trace of this woman's legacy of excellence in American history, and that unfortunately casts a haze of harsh labor over the kitchen that doesn't really make anyone really want to go into the kitchen and cook. Think about the terms that we use for the kitchen, chief among them slaving in the kitchen. While it is correct that black women did most of the cooking in early American kitchens, it's also true that they did so with grace and skill like trained professionals. They were chefs who honed their kitchen skills in the way that culinary students do today, by observation and apprenticeship, with training transmitted orally. When they cooked, they expressed both art and skill. Of course, they did make do in their homes, and they, but they also seasoned our lives and made existence pleasurable, even the most adverse circumstances. They cooked meals from scratch, sewed our clothes, salved our wounds, nurtured our spirits, and imparted wisdom over steaming plates of nourishment. And many of them, most of them, did so while miraculously maintaining jobs outside of their homes. So why is it that these are not the dominant images that we have for African-American cooks? Why don't we celebrate their contributions to American culture the way that we venerate an imaginary character, Betty Crocker? Why wasn't their true legacy preserved? Can we ever forget the images of ignorant, submissive, selfless, sassy, asexual despots? Is it possible for us to replace the mostly unflattering pictures of generous waistlines bent over cast iron skillets that have been burned into our eyes by Hollywood? Will we ever believe that strong African women who toted wood and built fires even before thinking about beating biscuit dough or making cakes left us with more than those formulas for good pancakes? These are the questions that I had roaming around in my head and I started digging around in archives trying to find the answers. I wanted to set black cooks free from images like these. I don't collect very many negative stereotypes, but I have just a few that help me stay focused and, and have some perspective. And what's so interesting about these is these are the images for the Aunt Jemima, um flower product that was, the company was established in the late 19th century by a couple of guys who wanted to sell more uh, they, they were selling pancake flour, and they thought a black, putting a black woman on the package would be the way for them to do that. So the Aunt Jemima character was a real woman. Um, they hired a woman to travel around the country and um, put on cooking demonstrations, flipping pancakes for the community. Um, eventually, she emerged as an advertisement. But what you can see here is the changes from those uh, images I showed you earlier to these, which are disparaging, and these appear during the Jim Crow era. And so the women begin to take on these animalistic 
character, characteristics, including the one in the red where her bandana is actually tied so that she looks like she has little ears. But when I explain this to the students, they're stunned, right? Like they have only seen this package label that we have today where she's wearing pearls and has her hair in a coiffure or whatever it's called. Um, and so they had no idea that this ever existed. And so we can't um, underestimate why decisions and choices and attitudes persist today when we haven't looked back and understand the history for how we got here. Um, so what I did was I used the same observations and practices that were used to sell pancakes to break this code. Um, what I did differently was my choice of interpretation. I stuck very close to my journalistic rules and decided that I would look exclusively at the work of the people and try very hard to not look any deeper emotionally than that. I encountered things like this picture. This is Melinda, Rus Melinda Pryor. Um, she went by the name of Mandy. Um, and she was the top selling photograph at the Austin Public Library in 2006. You just think about that for a few minutes. I'm not going to editorialize it. Um, but I stumbled on it because the, they were telling me that they were selling it, tons of them, and they did not know who she was. So I spent six months in their archives uh, figuring out who she was. Wrote a story about it. I looked at multiple sources, not just photographs. I looked at the writings of slaveholding women, news, opinions, recipes, historic facts. I looked at scholarship. I read slave narratives. My husband said, please stop reading that stuff at bedtime. <laughs> um, you cry yourself to sleep every night. Um, I read poetry. Um, this is from 1893, and this is uh, Howard Whedon was a woman who used to, in Atlanta, look through her fence at the black women working in the house next door. And so she created this poem and this illustration to honor those women. And finally, what I did was collect more than 375 black cookbooks that go back to 1827, but I'll tell you about that more in a minute. I put this whole thing together sort of like a recipe. You could expect as a food writer I would do that. And so all of those resources that I were looking at, think about those as my ingredients. right? The next thing that I did then would be the bottom part of the recipe where the method is contained, where you do something with it. right? You knead it. You let it marinate. You simmer it. I did all of those things. And I just took a moment to reconsider what I was reading um, and try to consider the um, competencies of the characters that I was reading about if I stripped off their race and culture and class. If I only saw them as white, how would they be perceived in history? And one of the things that I encountered was this book, The Bluegrass Cookbook. And we republished it with the University of uh, Press of Kentucky. Um, it was published in 1904. And what's compelling about The Bluegrass Cookbook is that it's the first time that African-American women are not disparaged. And it gave me hope. It gave me the opportunity to see that there were white and black people working together in this country despite the narrative that we're all continually told. Um, that the uh, author of this book in the introduction commends the African-American women in their community and calls, uh, lays all 
responsibility for Southern hospitality at the feet of the turban mistress. And for a long time before I had the Jemima Code, the turban mistress was my muse. I didn't quite know what to do with this uh, material that I was encountering, and I tried to sell it as a book, and no one would buy it. No literary agent, no publisher, no one wanted to hear it. Um, it was too contrary to what we've all been spoon-fed about race in this country. So I decided to do something different. And I took those images from the Bluegrass Cookbook, and I turned them into a traveling exhibit. We blew them up uh, into eight-foot sections. They're transparent banners, and they are designed to hang in beautiful spaces. We took the African-American women out of slavery, took them out of the ugly history, and put them in spaces that we could occupy to give people a new sense of who they were. No editorializing, just their names, but people would come into these sections, to these sessions. We've had them in various places around the country, in museums, um, in restaurants. Um, we had them in open air out in the public in a park, um, hanging the banners from the kids' swing. Um, but they're transparent, and the point was that people could meander around and through them, and those like those young people who had no experience with these women could possibly begin to have those encounters. And so these are the images that were taken from the Bluegrass Cookbook. Um, and they, they really did serve as a, as a platform that helped me work towards the third part of my recipe, um, which was the idea of serving the dish. Once I had prepared it, um, my goal is to restore our relationships. The whole point of this work is racial reconciliation. And once we, in my opinion, once we observe the transformation of these maligned kitchen people, into role models, they can become inspirational and powerful symbols of wisdom and authority. They were that once, but they were, their history was distorted. Um, then we can all share in and enjoy their insight, the way that we revere that fictitious Betty Crocker and other famous Food Network stars. These are real women, and they formed a natural and an illuminating story uh, for all of the black women in particular, but some men who fed um, America. They gave me a new sense of respect for a generation of black cooks like my grandmother. And again, I've used various projects in which to describe them. Um, another one of those is to use those slave narratives which were taken in, the 18, in um, 1936 um, as part of the Federal Writers Project. Um, to listen for different stories that they tell. So this Fannie Moore was from North Carolina, and she gives a three or four page summary of her life on the plantation. But what she tells us is something more compelling, that without a cookbook, without the ability to read or write, but required to memorize hundreds of recipes and to replay them over and over again, without a cookbook, she teaches us something that a chef has called mental mise en place. Mise en place is a French term that chefs use for organizing of their kitchens, um, and it means everything in its place. And these women could have lost their lives for burning the toast or putting too much salt in the food. And so the idea that she has explained to us in this very brief sentence that was embedded in a very long narrative, we can learn from real women like this the focus and the imagination that it must have taken for them to perform those tasks, many of them multiple times, and many at 
all at once. So I had all of this stuff. I had this recipe that I've been working on. I've got my dish. I'm ready to serve it. Nobody will buy it. <laughs> it's like inviting people to a dinner party and then nobody comes. This is the image that drove me to the internet. Well, I've given you, give it away in the little tagline on the bottom, but in other slides, I don't have that there, so you know when it happened. But um, I often ask the audience, when do you think this happened? This was a student newspaper at Texas A&M, and it, ha it appeared during what the state of Texas uh, calls tax, tax test time, Texas Assessment of Knowledge and Skills. And it's a time when students are being evaluated, those standardized tests that the kids all hate. Um, and this woman is not happy that her son hasn't done very well. But what was troubling to me is that our best and brightest students who, go, who have had no interaction perhaps with African-American suburban women go to the library and come away with those negative stereotypes, and this is what they thought was a suitable representation for a woman in the suburbs. I was offended, as I said earlier, and I didn't think so, that that was a great idea. And so I started collecting these cookbooks in earnest. I was looking for real voices at this point. I needed to regroup my idea, nobody was buying it, and so I encountered the bibliography of black cookbooks at the University of Alabama, and I used that as my shopping list. And every day I would enter a different book title into that browser until one of the books on that list popped up. I started with the oldest ones first because I figured they would be the most insightful. Um, and I wasn't searching for new books initially. Um, and then as any of you that are collectors know, you become addicted. And it's like, like main, like you, like they say mainline. I shouldn't, I don't know, but you just you can't stop it. And so um, before I knew it, I had over 375 um, of these. And they, um, my collection has some that are current, um, but mostly it ends at in the 1990s, um, and that number is 375. Um, Alabama has about 450 on the bibliography in their archive, but that number uh, reflects community cookbooks, it reflects um, church books, things that I will never have access to because of um, their ability to have people bring them to them. Um, but I have some things they don't have, too. Um, one of my uh, precious jewels is the oldest book in the collection. It's the first edition of a book called Robert, uh, by an author named Robert Roberts. Um, and we can talk about him at some other point. What is important to know about these books is that um, they tell us so many different things beyond um, the condescending and uh, ugly caricatures of black women. Um, Books like this one, um, there's a whole collection and series of these that are out there that can be purchased. Um, they were written by white women, and even though they are consigning their mammy to this perpetual life of slave in a box or slave in a recipe picture, um, these, this one in particular does something unique for me. Um, so I do collect some of them. I collect the ones where there is the name of a cook 
attributed to the recipes. So they don't just say, if in other cases this might say Aunt Caroline's Dixieland recipes or Mammy's cookbook as some of them do, um, and then they don't na name the cook. Um, but here I'm able to, in a form of reparations, give credit for the intellectual property to Caroline Pickett because they identify her inside. And I consider them to be more like her editors or her transcribers. We all love Edna Lewis, those of us that know her, and there's a new book, a uh, collection of essays published by North Carolina where many of us were uh, asked to write an ode to her. Um, she was the grand dame of Southern cooking, and for a long time she was very subtly the stand-in for the Miramie character. I know that sounds negative for those of us that love her, but we have to be really careful about not fetishizing her, um, and she's becoming um, the go-to. Right there, the beauty of the Jemima Code and this collection is that those 400 people stand in the gap for thousands of other cooks and present an opportunity for our young people to now have many other role models. But we do love Edna Lewis. And what is important to me as I was collecting the books and the images and trying to sort them into categories is that Edna Lewis does something even more um, than what she is recognized for, which is the celebration of Southern food and country cooking. Her first book, The Edna Lewis Cookbook, was a book primarily about her restaurant experience. And she was for a long time not considered Southern um, because of her work in the kitchen, uh, in the kitchens of New York. And for me, that added another important element, not just that these were people that had incredible memories and talents that they managed uh, in their heads, but also that um, they were professionals with proficiencies and culinary skills and competencies that one learns in culinary school. Another aspect of um, my motivation came directly from Ms. Lewis. Um, I was explaining to her once uh, my passion for this and my frustration, and she wrote to me in the middle of the night in the ways that those people in that generation did. They marked the time on the top of their letter, and she said, it's 5.30 in the morning. Um, and I opened my ode to her with that. Um, she scribbled this letter out to me, and the end of it said, leave no stone unturned. And that's what I did. I used her history, I used Caroline Pickett's representation, and I sorted through every one of these 375 books to look for characteristics that are truth, that aren't um, easy to manipulate or turn into racist propaganda. Um, and I did that for our, the next generations as well as for us. So what I'll do is very quickly before our time runs out, um, is run through a couple of the categories. Um, the Jemima Code is organized uh, by, uh, the books are organized chronologically. It is a beautifully, fully colored, um, annotated bibliography in which I describe these books in similar ways that I'll describe them to you. Um, they're categorized by the accomplishments of those cooks and what was happening for them. Uh, they, the books are placed in social context, so we're able to see what life was like for them um, during the time that the books were uh, published. And so the first group, we'll look at three or four groups, and the first one is chefs. 
So as I was searching around looking for content, I found a lot about men. You've heard me this afternoon already speaking mostly about women. Uh, this began as a project to promote women's history um, because everywhere I turned, I could find information about people like Hercules who uh, worked uh, in the kitchen. Um, he was the chief cook at Mount Vernon for George Washington and in Philadelphia. Um, he was known and respected for all of the fine dishes that he cooked. Um, and so was James Hemings. Um, this is a page from um, an inventory in Thomas Jefferson's papers written in Hemings pen. And he's describing for us um, what was on hand in his kitchen pantry. Um, not quite the ignoramus that um, these people are often portrayed to be. He was also French trained. Um, Thomas Jefferson has sent him to France so that he could learn um, the classic technique uh, of French cooking. He came back with um, what we think is the early recipe for macaroni and cheese. Um, in his book, Soul Food, Adrian Miller um, asked the, introduces the chapter on macaroni and cheese, and he asks the question, how did macaroni and cheese get so black? It's my favorite question. <laughs> Hemings is how we had, got that. He also uh, contributed to the for creation of ice cream. Uh, Rufus Estes uh, worked on the Pullman Railroad, and he published this book in 1911. Um, he then stands in the gap for people like Hercules and um, James Hemings and others who were professionally trained. Um, and they give us an insight um, into the valuable technical skills that these people must have had. But we also get a glimpse into some aspects of their character because of the other um, elements that they describe in their books. They talk about um, uh, punctuality and how to keep your uniform clean and lots of other um, core values that we would want to pass on just as those people were doing uh, back then. What I like about the chefs is that um, people have said to me, well, that's white food that they were cooking. That's trained food. It's not African-American cooking. But we don't know what classically trained chefs in our midst are cooking at home today, do we? We do not know what they do at home we, with their children. We don't know about Rachel and Emeril. What we do know is we give them credit for the food that they cook at work. And so I'm advocating that chefs like Rufus and others be known for the foods that they prepared on the job. And that's a great, that's a picture from uh, his frontispiece. So he is, he does go down in history as the, what we know to be um, the first African-American chef. They also functioned in spaces of entrepreneurship, which is important for young people today to know, especially with social media, that there are opportunities in the food world to create businesses where they can have economic independence and not um, suffer um, in poverty. Um, it takes a little bit of work to tease some of this out. This is a popular, very popular book from the 30s. Um, in which the author has lots of um, descriptions of African-American cooks in her mists. And um, she gives us some of the kinds of calls and language that might have been used. And initially, it can seem 
um, racist. Um, but what she does also is help us understand um, who these cooks were, what their business models were like, what kind of work they were doing. This is from another book similar to that one. It's called 200 Years of Charleston Cooking. And so it provides us with some of the images of these vendors that used food as a tool to um, purchase their freedom. This is known as the first African-American cookbook outright. There were four books published in the 19th century. Um, the first two of them were published by men, and they were primarily household and hotel management documents. But the last two, this one and the next one, uh, were published by women. This one, a free woman of color. Her name was Melinda Russell. Um, this book appeared re in the last 10 years or so, and it is now um, archived at the University of Michigan. Um, what is compelling about Melinda Russell is that not only was she a free woman of color, um, but she um, produced this book to raise money to return to her home in Tennessee. She had been robbed several times. She had a child who was handicapped. And so she's an example to me for young people of to what it means to be a working woman, a working mother, uh, during incredibly difficult circumstances. Um, she owned a boarding house and a bakery. And so a lot of the recipes in this book, more than 250 of them, are for medicinal recipe remedies. Uh, there's household formulas and classic pastry shop recipes. Um, they're all organized. Um, well, let me say that she, this is where I learned her story. And then the students at University of Michigan um, did further work um, and helped us understand uh, what her knowledge base was, including the fact that she says that she cooked after the model of the Virginia housewife. I thought you guys would like that part. Um, but she writes in the classic style of the um, recipe books at the time, which does help us understand that white women probably helped her get her book published. Um, she commends them, and she says so in that intro. She made novelties like rice milk by soaking rice overnight in an aromatic bath of sweet milk flavored with lemon. Um, and we're drinking rice milk today. So these are important little clues for me to tell the next generation um, looking for confidence and pride in their history. Um, this book is by Abby Fisher. It's called What Mrs. Fisher Knows About Southern Cooking. Um, as an example of how compelling this work has become over the last two years, um, this is one of the books that I don't have in uh, first edition. Um, I only have it as a facsimile, and it became available last year at auction in New York City. And I jokingly put on Facebook that I was digging around in my husband's pockets and sofa cushions looking for quarters so that I could go to the auction. And people challenged me to open a GoFundMe. I said, no, that's icky. Food reporters don't do that. But they begged me, and they said, this work really matters beyond recipe books. It shows a way that cookbooks and books in general can be used for greater good. And so I opened this crazy GoFundMe. And in 10, 10 days, 
we raised $10,000. We lost the auction to New York Public Library, though. So anyone who can help me find it, we are happy to hear it. I'm going to zip through the remaining so that you can ask questions if you would like. Um, the next group will be educators. Um, one of those negative what, things that I had to pour through were books like this one. The book is called Ni Dixie Dishes, and it was published in 1941. Tell me what you see here. You see a woman teaching another her skills with pancakes, right? But the language is the type of language that was attributed to the cook in the rest of the book. But there's something even more insidious happening here. That's not a little girl. That's probably the, house, the, the housewife who's getting that lesson. And so you can just see the subtlety here of making the black woman into this imposing, large uh, woman that even has the lines on the illustration sort of imply hair. Um, they're subtle. And you might think that I'm over, overreacting. But after you've seen so many of them, you begin to see the pattern. Here's another part of that pattern. This is what was called a slave cookie rec receipt. Um, I won't read it to you since you said the visuals are pretty good here, but the takeaway from it is that um, this recipe was designed to malign the African-American woman and her language and her um, communication skills. At one point in those books, the women say things like, "If she could, she's a great cook if she could just um, get the words out, if she could just help us understand how she did it. Well, I'm not certain that those women were so ignorant or as they were perceived. And the last few lines help us understand that. She says, if, when she's talking about the eggs, she says, if they's cheap, I takes four. And if I feels a little close, I takes three. And if there's dear, I take two. And one might do right well. And if they's very dear, I discharge, discharge eggs at all and don't use any. What's she saying? She's saying that what she does with the recipe depends upon the chickens that day. And whether she has large eggs or small eggs, it doesn't mean that she's ignorant. It just means she's in command of the cooking of the dish. And the person trying to extract that recipe from her is really the one who doesn't have the information. I love that. Education, uh, domestic science, home economics, all of these were practices at the turn of the 20th century that white women were using to elevate um, themselves and their households in a patriarchal society. You can read a lot about that in Laura Shapiro's work. Um, but African Americans were not, that, that messaging wasn't lost on African Americans who also established cooking programs at historically black colleges as we know them today. They had many different concepts that they followed, and one of them that um, intrigued me the most was this one found over the blackboard at Bethune-Cookman College, which is, uh, was started by Mary McLeod Bethune. And she's encouraging the women, as I am, cease to be a drudge, seek to be an artist. She speaks to them not only about skill, not only about entrepreneurship, but now we're learning another aspect, and that is that artistry and creativity matter in cooking. Um, this book from Hampton University, for example, is highly technical. Um, it was published in 1921, and it helps to provide those formal educations for rural Southern girls. 
Um, the author taught that steaming vegetables were preferred to boiling to retain nutritive value, and she advocated that beans were a good meat source. She encouraged cook to serve, cooks to serve tomatoes raw, washed and skinned without scalding. So uh, another aspect that I share with our students is that nutrition matters. What they put in their mouths. You can't live on flaming Hot Cheetos. Um, Helen Mohammed was a private cooking school teacher. We've all heard of George Washington Carver and his instructional cookbooks on farm and kitchen efficiency. He teaches us how to grow peanuts and sweet, and sweet potatoes. And he also uh, offers us some recipes that um, turn peanuts into gluten-free flours. But he did something else that helps with our messages about healthy cooking. He created the Jessup Wagon, and it predated what we know to be the Agricultural Extension Program. He took, he took this wagon out into the countryside and taught rural women how to cook healthy food. Um, this is Lucille Bishop-Smith in Texas. Uh, I can just imagine her standing at the stove advocating healthy cooking. She created what we know to be the first hot roll mix before Pillsbury introduced it to the marketplace. Um, she teaches us about cultural uh, fusion cooking by explaining to her um, cooks on the recipe card, uh, in her, one of the recipe cards in her collection. She phonetically describes guacamole as wa-ka-mo-le. And she enunciates that on uh, the recipe for an avocado salad, which also traces back to its African roots um, and the alligator, what was called an alligator pear. Um, she has been so inspirational, not just to me, but also to her grandson, who opened a restaurant in her name in, the Houston, uh, in Houston's museum district. It's called Lucille's, and it's a fine dining restaurant. Finally, uh, Aunt Priscilla was one of the ways that she was a um, column that ran in the Baltimore Sun. A white woman was behind the column, and the whole thing was written in vernacular in the 30s. Um, there's a book that, several books that mimic this practice. One was called Miss Minerva's Cookbook. And Nick told me, that I didn't realize until yesterday, that she was uh, the author, Emma Sampson, was from here. Uh, also in media was a woman named uh, Lena Richard in New Orleans. Uh, 25 years before Julia Child had a cooking show, Lena Richard was on TV. She published the blue book, Lena Richard's Cookbook, in 1939. Um, in 1940, the great James Beard encountered her book, and he and the food editor Clementine Paddleford lobbied their, cook, their publisher, Houghton Mifflin, to reissue the book for her, which they did. Um, it became the New Orleans cookbook. The black one on the uh, slide um, is the very first book that I ever collected. I didn't understand what it was going to do for me. There's no photograph. I didn't know that it had anything to do with a black woman. But I just thought, it's got some connections to the South, so I'll take it from this free book giveaway that I was at. Um, and it turns out that now I am one of the few that have all of the I think there's one more issue at, since this um, slide was taken, four editions of this book. But what is tragic about this book is that in that initial um, 1939 edition, Lena thought that her uh, 
portrait belonged in the photograph. She wanted to convey who she was, not the, against the stereotype. And when Houghton Mifflin reissued the book, this was removed. I've had people argue with me because no one's seen that other edition, but I happen to have that edition where the book, the picture is there. And I could go on and on and on like this, and I do, and there's plenty more slides. Um, I talk about these people as caterers and their entrepreneurship. I talk about them as um, entrepreneurs. I'm going to speed through some of them to get us to a place. Um, This caterer, uh, I wanted you to see Mammy Pleasant. She was referred to as Mammy and the queen of voodoo. There was fear that she was killing the men in her boarding house, and that was how she was gaining her wealth. Um, <laughs> this is the mansion that she turned into a boarding house in San Francisco. This is that corner today. These are the trees that she planted there, um, and there is a marker in her name. Um, the Federation Cookbook was published in 1912 by Bertha Turner, and she was a home economics um, supervisor in California. What I love about her is, can you see those furs? <laughs> she used food as a mechanism to make her way into the middle class, as many of them did. And so finally, um, what we've covered is that these books have opened a window for all of us to see African Americans in a totally different light when it pertains to food. We can see that there was an understanding of healthy cooking, we can see that there was beauty and art artistry and creativity associated with our cooking. We're able to understand the simplicity of it all and that it's possible to take something very simple and make it into something really delicious. And finally, this is the thing that we make out of Edna Lewis's cookbook that um, when it comes out of the oven, people are standing around the stove with a spoon. No one will allow me to bring it to the table. <laughs> These are some of the children that I share this message with, hoping that you will see in them the possibilities for this work. Um, that's the um, White House pastry chef. And he joined me at a program with these children at the University of Texas's elementary school. And we helped the kids garden and prepare dishes from their garden. And this is the message that we leave them with and that I leave with you, hoping that as you go forward, as I do, um, you will help me and others reclaim that bandana, um, the way that we wear our um, I Voted Today sticker. I'm having little stickers made up, and someday you'll be able to um, be an ambassador wherever you go. Um, but for now, the Jemima Code is our way of sharing this message and advocating on behalf of those who did not have a voice for themselves. Thank you. Um, I've been searching for a cookbook that I'm hoping you know about. Um, I understand that somewhere around 1880s, what is now Hampton University, 
Um, the Alumni Association put out a cookbook. Have you ever heard of it? Do you know anything about it? I haven't heard of that one, but uh, not. it doesn't surprise me. Dillard University did the same thing. They went collected recipes from the community. Um, there is a woman who has published three or four books of recipes related to historically black colleges. Her, the author's name is Carolyn Quick Tillery, and one of those books is a Hampton book. So she, you might be able to, uh, through that book and through her, find the information. Repeat the name again. Carolyn Quick Tillery. Tillery. Mm -hmm. Thank you. You're welcome. Uh, yeah. I recently inherited 600 cookbooks, and I don't cook. Do you have any suggestions? Yes, I do. <laughs> 600 of them. Wow, congratulations. Well, first I would suggest that you... Uh, Learn to cook? No. No. Check and make sure that if there are any African-American ones in there. We talk about that. Um, and then, honestly, I would suggest that you speak. Um, Don is outside, um, who um, operates one of the largest um, book co cooking, cookery book brokerages. And he will be able to help you understand the strategic placement of those books, because we want them to be in sources where students have access to them or the public can view them. Mine are um, kept in private because they are so rare, um, and there's just nothing else like it. Um, that I haven't turned them over yet, but you definitely, a university or a library archive would be a wonderful place for them. Okay, last question on the far side. Graham, did you have one? Or here in the front. Oh, hi. Hi. Thank you so much. Holy cow, I didn't realize you were a uh, scholar. Thank you. I, I'm, I'm, I'm a cook. <laughs> and I'm, I'm one of these people I can watch TV and, and they go, oh, a pinch of this and a handful of that. And I can recreate it. And they go, how did you do that? And it's because I can read a indecipherable recipe. And, and like the lady with the eggs, how many eggs you got? OK, I'll adjust it. Hey, no problem. Right. <laughs> I, I'm one of those. Well, and what you don't I, realize is that, that, that there is a history you. of that in your life. You've been reading recipes, haven't you? Uh, or did I, you cook at someone's knee that showed, that taught you? I grew up in a hotel. I ordered off a menu. Oh, really? Uh, there was a pastry chef I used to watch when I was a kid. Oh. And of course, Jessie May. She didn't tell us the secret. When you fry chicken, you put the lid on. That's right. She said I was speeding it up. No, yeah. no, no. Vogue magazine, 20 years later, informed me that it was the moisture that rained down on the uncooked side that poofed it. That's and right. And that's how the secret is, right? Right. That's right. OK. I grew up seeing that all the black people in around me uh, were big and strong and had beautiful teeth. And we were all off to the dentist at the age of six. And I was going, what is the secret? And right, that's what I was hoping your cookbook would tell me that today. And I, I just wanted to thank you for doing all your research and um, 
thank you for coming. Well, thank you. Um, this book was, in, as you could hear, there was a lot more that I could have said, um, and I do in different settings. I might only speak about the healthy parts of these books that I discovered, or um, the entrepreneurship that was revealed, and that's what you have in front of you is those different chapters. Um, but we intentionally did not include recipes in this book because the messaging is so complex that we thought we better get people just understanding that there was a different reality for the black cooks in our midst before we started trying to convince you about their healthy food habits. Um, so the next book um, that I've just turned in and we're uh, hoping will be published in 2019 is called Jubilee. And that's the working title because now we're all free. The cooks are free to express themselves and for us to understand them in their individuality. We are free to embrace them from whatever space we're in. Um, and to realize that learning on the job or watching someone or on television, that's still a form of learning. Um, and that's what they were doing. And you did it by observing uh, in the hotel. Um, and so we can't discount the, the value of um, observation. I will say that when I watch these cooking shows and they're going really fast and they're saying, oh yeah, you can just do this and this and this and they're throwing things together. And then our cooks at home don't understand why their recipes don't work. And they don't work because in the, mat, in the um, purpose of expediency, they leave out steps. And you don't know that if you've never seen this dish prepared before. And so it leads to frustration in our communities. And people are, you can see just um, in the degree of obesity that's in our communities um, and how unhealthy we are and the rising rates of diabetes. Um, when you prepare someone something as simple as that blackberry cobbler, you only need a few bites. But if you buy a Sam's Club cake, that is just straight sugar and very little flavoring. You just keep eating it and eating it and trying to find that point of satiety. Whereas a couple of spoonfuls of a really wonderful piece of chicken or something fresh from the farm um, really holds its value. So a lot of these old recipes say salt and pepper because they were working with farm fresh products and so the chickens were fresh and they did not have to do all of this stuff that later cookbooks trying to reproduce what they thought the black hand was providing, was a lot of it was also the quality of the ingredients. And even when we were dealing with what we call um, poverty ingredients. That's not the fullness of the African-American story. So the recipes that are going to follow are going to be the recipes from these people. They are going to be the foods that we would have all enjoyed um, because there's plenty of stories um, and books focused on soul food and survival cooking and the cabin. And, and we want to brighten and lighten without um, minimizing what these people experienced in this country. But it's time for us to celebrate them so we can all enjoy them as you describe, wondering how did they um, keep themselves so healthy. One of the taglines for the dessert recipes in the new book um, comes from, um, there, I have so much stuff in my head. <laughs> I'll think of it in a minute, but she, um, she's on tour in Africa with her husband, and she says, how do those women bake those wonderful cakes while fending off lions and zebras? <laughs> That's the spirit of the new book. It's going to be light and um, embracing of these people. Thank you. Very much. Thank you.